Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you and have this opportunity to open up God's word with you. I want to invite you to pray with me again briefly, and then we will look at God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as surely as the rain falls from the sky and nourishes the soil and brings forth a harvest, so your word falls from heaven. And we pray that it would produce a harvest of righteousness and faith, that you would pour out your lavish grace on us today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, I want to invite you to open with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 42. If you're using the Bible that we've provided, you'll find the passage beginning on page 35. We're going to be studying both Genesis 42 and 43 today. I want to invite you to, or I want to encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along as I read it in a few moments. And I want to encourage you to also keep it open in front of you because we're going to be referencing the passage often in our time together. Last week, we covered two chapters, but I only read one of them because Really, the main thrust of that entire passage was found in the second of the two chapters. But today, I'm going to read both chapters, chapters 42 and 43, because of the development that occurs throughout the passage and how that will help us really grasp all that's going on there. It should take me about 10 minutes to read all of it, and I want to encourage you to really try to engage with the passage As I read it, don't check out, right? Kids, if you guys are at the point where you can read, I want to invite you to follow along in the Bible as I read it. All of us should be asking the Lord to speak to us as the passage is read. There may be things as I read it that the Lord convicts you of or comforts you with that I don't even bring up in the sermon today, and that's a good thing. The Spirit works through the reading of God's word, and so I want to encourage you to follow along. Last week, we saw how God sovereignly exalted Joseph to become the savior of the world by providing bread for the nations during a severe famine, and this week, we find Jacob sending his sons, Joseph's brothers, to Egypt to buy grain during this severe famine. What happens when they go? We find out in chapters 42 and 43. Follow along with me as I read Genesis 42 and 43. This is God's word. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live. And not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. 
And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Now the famine was severe in the land, 
And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother, ben, other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkey's fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. 
Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. If I were to summarize the message of these two chapters for us, it is this. God lavishes his grace on an unworthy people. Message of Genesis 42 and 43 is this. God lavishes his grace on an unworthy people. What we're gonna do with the rest of our time is walk through the passage briskly, focusing on its key features. And then we're gonna consider how this passage is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in the good news of the gospel. And then we'll consider how we should live in light of what we learn here in these two chapters. So I wanna invite you to go ahead and look at the text together with me. I want you to notice first the dire circumstances Jacob and his sons were facing if you look at the beginning of chapter 42 in those first few verses. They're living through a severe famine. And that famine has put them in a life and death situation. Look at chapter 42, verse two. Jacob says, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So if they weren't already starving because of the famine, in Jacob's mind, they soon would be. They needed to act quickly and go to Egypt, the one place on earth where food could be found. So Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to buy grain, and as the rest of the chapter unfolds, chapter 42 we're reminded of how corrupt and violent and deceptive Jacob's sons were and apparently still are. I think the first place that we see this is in verses three and four. You can go ahead and look there with me. Jacob's sons go down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob didn't send Benjamin because he feared that harm might happen to him. So Benjamin was Joseph's brother through Rachel. All the other sons of Jacob came through Leah and her servants. So Benjamin is the only brother of Joseph who is gone, who is no more according to Jacob's sons. And Jacob doesn't wanna send Benjamin with them because he's concerned about him. He fears that harm might happen to him. And though he doesn't say it explicitly, I don't think Jacob wants to send Benjamin with them because he's concerned his brothers will cause him harm. You think about his, what's going on in his own mind. The last time Jacob sent his other son through Rachel on a mission involving his brothers, that son never came home. And I think Jacob has lingering concerns about the spiritual state and character of his 10 oldest sons. That's not the only place we see their corrupt character on display. 
in verse six and following, they arrive in Egypt and they unknowingly encounter their brother Joseph, who is now the governor of all of the land of Egypt and the one responsible for selling grain to the starving nations. And though they don't recognize him, Joseph recognizes them. I mean, can you imagine what this was like for Joseph? I mean, you just gotta step into these shoes. This has been 20 plus years since he has seen them, 20 plus years. It's likely that as governor, who is the one responsible for selling the grain in the land of Egypt, that Joseph would have been seated on some sort of movable throne that would have moved throughout the land of Egypt and he would have sold out of the various storehouses in Egypt. He probably would have had guards around him and a line in front of him of people from the nations coming to buy grain from him. And so he completes a transaction with the group that's in front of them. They leave and the guards yell, next! And up to the table steps 10 of Joseph's brothers. He's probably within 10 yards of them, sitting there staring at the brothers who threw him in the pit and then sold him into slavery. What would you feel in that moment? Can you imagine the thoughts that would have been going on in your mind? The brothers who sold him into slavery in Egypt, the one who caused all the pain and suffering he had endured over these last 20 years. Did it show on his face? Did he like twitch even just a little bit? Did it show at all? Was his heart flooded with the swirling emotions of anger, vengeance, sadness, compassion? I think so, as we'll soon see. You see how emotional he is throughout these two chapters. But the focus here that I want to focus on is his brother's and their corrupt character. Joseph begins interrogating them harshly and accuses them of being spies. Now, we know that he recognizes them. So Moses tells us that multiple times. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. So what's with the harsh treatment and accusing them of being spies when he knows who they are? Well, I think the reason he engages them this way is to not give away who he is, and to wisely draw out of them the information he wants to know. If he starts asking questions like, where is your father? And don't you have another brother? Right, that's, that's gonna give away who he is. And so instead, he charges them with being spies, which results in them telling him about their background. Now notice what they say about themselves. Look at verse 10. They said to him, no, my Lord, Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. You wonder if Joseph internally flies off the handle. You're what? Honest men? Honest men? You're the furthest thing from a possible from honest men. I mean, think about who these men are and what they've done. These are the same honest men 
who deceived the Shechemites, straight lied to them about their intentions and then vengefully and unjustly murdered and plundered the city of Shechem. Reuben, you're the one who slept with one of your father's wives. Judah, you denied Tamar of her marital rights, leaving a widow destitute and then said she should be burned to death for taking what was rightfully hers. All of you were filled with so much jealousy and anger towards Joseph and towards me that that you plotted to murder me and throw me into a pit and then sold me into slavery in Egypt. And you have the gall to call yourselves honest men? Five times in the chapter, it is repeated. We are honest men. To press home the painful fact, these men are the furthest thing possible from honest men. They're corrupt. We see how corrupt they are. Look at verse 21. After Joseph puts him in custody, he overhears their conversation. And look at what they say. In truth, right, we're not honest men. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. We are being repaid for all the evil that we've done. You have to go back to Genesis 37 when Joseph is thrown into the pit because nothing is said of it there. In Genesis 37, it says that they threw him into the pit and they sat down and ate. Callous as callous could be. Now we know that the brothers heard him screaming from the pit to save him and to pull him out of the pit, and they just kept on eating. That's how callous and corrupt these men were and are. And yet these corrupt and unworthy men receive lavish grace. We see that grace unfold in the remainder of the passage. Joseph goes on to tell them that he's going to let all of them go, except for Simeon, who will remain in custody. Pause. Put yourself in Simeon's shoes. The brothers are all leaving. He's been left in the pit. If you're Simeon, and you know what your brothers are capable of, do you think you're ever, they're ever coming back for you? Not a chance, right? So now Joseph is like, hey, what you did to me, I'm going to do to you. Simeon, you stay in an Egyptian jail. Brothers will leave with money in their bags. They're not coming back for you. But then he, he gives them conditions, right? Simeon, you'll remain in custody. The only way that Simeon can be freed from custody is if they return with their youngest brother, Benjamin. So the brothers depart for Canaan to bring back the grain they purchased and to retrieve their brother, Benjamin. And it's here that we see the first hint of lavish grace these brothers would receive from Joseph. Look at verse 25. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his bag and to give them provisions for the journey. The grain they purchased to save themselves from starvation would be given to them freely. Joseph doesn't take their money. He gives it back to them. Not only that, he gives them more than they asked for. 
He gives them provisions for their journey. I'm not just gonna give you the grain that you bought from me. I'm gonna go above and beyond and give you provisions for your journey home. And this hint that they would receive lavish grace from Joseph comes into full focus in chapter 43. You can let your eyes fall across verses one to 10. Of, uh, verses one to 10 of chapter 43, we see that some time passes after they return to Jacob and Canaan. Their grain has run out. Jacob tells them to return to buy more and Judah tells them we can't go without Benjamin. The man told us not to return unless we have Benjamin with us. So Jacob sends them on their way. He gives them gifts to bring with them, including double the money, right? Since they didn't want to be accused of stealing after finding the money returned to them on their first visit. And then he sends them on their way with a prayer. Look at verse 14. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. Jacob prays for God to show them grace. For God to show them unmerited favor when they stand before Joseph. And Jacob's prayer is answered. Joseph's brothers arrive with Benjamin. One of Joseph's servants brings the men to Joseph's home. And the brothers immediately tell the servant that they've brought double the money because they don't want to be accused of stealing. Right? We found money in our sacks. We, we, we gave the money. We, we, we paid for this grain. And, and to prove it, we're giving you this money and we're bringing double the money with us. And look at how the servant responds in verse 23. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob wants you to know that you can't buy his grace. He wants you to keep your money. And we see this theme of God's lavish grace towards them continue. The brothers are all brought before Joseph again. He asks about their father. They tell him Jacob is living and well. Now look at verse 29. And Joseph lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. Joseph's compassion and his pronouncement of God's grace aren't just for Benjamin. Joseph shows lavish grace to all of his brothers. He returns from his chamber and astonishingly prepares a feast for them. They came to buy grain. They get grain and a feast. They sit down together with Joseph. He sits down and eats with them. Now look at the final line of the chapter. And they drank and were merry with him. If you read the footnote, apparently they drank a lot. The sense that Moses wants us to take from this is one of abundance. Joseph shared a feast with them. His table was wide open to them. 
I want you to notice the trajectory of these two chapters. The corrupt men who at the beginning of chapter 42 were on the brink of starvation traveled to Egypt to buy grain so that they might live and not die, instead receive their grain for free, and more than that, are invited to feast at the table of the very man they sold into slavery, all of which is a manifest display of the way that God lavishes grace on unworthy people. Friends, I hope you see how this passage foreshadows the way God lavishes his grace on an unworthy people through his son, Jesus Christ. We saw last week how Joseph foreshadows Jesus, right? The way God God sovereignly raised Joseph from the pit to become the savior of the world by feeding people with bread during a famine foreshadows the way that God sovereignly raised Jesus from the pit to become the savior of the world by feeding people with spiritual bread from heaven. And what's so remarkable about these chapters is that they show us how richly God lavishes his grace in salvation on such an unworthy people. Joseph not only freely provides grain for the very men who sold him into slavery, thus allowing them to live and not die, he also invites them to feast with him at his table. This is an astonishing display of lavish grace. Yet as astonishing as it is, it pales in comparison to the grace that Jesus has lavished on his people in the gospel. Uh, To my brothers and sisters in Christ, we were like Joseph's brothers. As much as we might want to think of ourselves as honest men and women in the sight of God, we weren't honest men and women. We were, as Paul says in Romans, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, We were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. We were gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We had all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, yet just as Joseph lavishes his grace on the very men who threw him into the pit, so much more has Jesus lavished grace on the very people whose sins were the cause of his death. What does Peter say? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. It was our sins that held him there. It was our sins for which he was pierced. It was our rejection of God that resulted in him being crushed. And yet this is why he came. You didn't even think about Joseph's brothers coming to him for grain. It's as as though Joseph brought the grain to Canaan for them. Like, yo, you're starving, come to me. This This is what Jesus did for us. He came to us to give us life. He came to die so that his enemies could become his very own family. So that through him, God's lavish grace would be poured out on us. And like Joseph's brothers, 
we would be invited to feast with Jesus at his banquet table. We see a beautiful picture of this in the Gospels, don't we? The night before Jesus dies on the cross, what does he do? He shares a meal with his disciples. Disciples who would, in short order, completely abandon him. Honest men like Peter, who swore he would stay by Jesus' side to the death, but as soon as Peter is threatened, what does he do? No, I don't know him at all. Don't want anything to do with him. Yet Jesus knew they would abandon him. And he still not only shared the meal with them, but gave his life for them. Lavishing God's grace on them by redeeming them from the power of sin. And he has done the same for us. For us, an unworthy people. But if you believe in Jesus, just think of who you were before God lavished his grace on you. Some of us didn't care about God at all. God, what God? Some of us never thought twice about the fact that God had given us life. Some of us were living for ourselves. Some of us used other people. Some of us were engaged in grievous sins. Others of us looked down on those bad people thinking we were the honest people, thinking we were righteous in ourselves. Some of us pridefully thought we could earn God's favor and all of us were God's enemies. And on us, an unworthy people, God has lavished his grace. Think of what Paul says in Ephesians 1. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul would go on to say, the grace and mercy of God overflows to us. It's like a tidal wave crashing on the shores. He lavishes his grace on an unworthy people. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, Though it is so easy to do so, we should never grow tired of or become bored with hearing about and meditating on the grace that God has lavished on us through Jesus. My wife will tell you, if there's a fad diet out there, I have tried it. I, just, I like to experiment. I like to see if there's some other way I could optimize my nutrition, right? Or take care of my body. In our 10 years of marriage, I've done a juicing diet. I've done paleo. I've done Whole30. I've tried vegan. If it exists, for real, I'll try it. You, you can try an experiment. I mean, just come tell me about some fad diet you've heard about. I will try it for you. So recently, I tried the carnivore diet. What's the carnivore diet, you ask? You eat meat and only meat all the time. Faithful diet adherent that I am, I watched a bunch of videos on the carnivore diet. I want to make sure I'm doing this right. Tell me what rules I need to follow and I'll follow them. Apparently the rules are very simple. Eat, eat, eat meat and only meat all the time. Okay, I can do that. But very quickly though, I came across pros and cons videos. My experience doing carnivore for six months. And so I wanted to see, hey, what did these other people experience? What were the pros and cons 
that they experienced. I wanted to know what I was getting myself into and what people didn't like about the carnivore diet. Do you know what the number one complaint is? Boredom. People get bored with it. We gotta think about this. They get bored with eating bacon and ribeye and filet for every meal. Like, excuse me? You get bored with eating bacon and ribeye and filet? What is wrong with you? You're getting bored by the tenderest and richest cuts of steak. What's wrong with you? There are people in the world starving right now, and you're bored by having to eat another filet. Friends, that can be us, can it? God's grace. Yeah, it's good. I mean, I heard about it last week. I'm going to hear it about it again this week. Yeah, God saved me. I've heard about that before. No big deal, right? Sure, I'll go to church, hear what God did again. Same old news, no big deal. I am getting a little tired of it, though. I wish, I wish maybe we would talk about something else. Friends, that shouldn't be us. God has lavished his grace on us. He has given us a completely undeserved feast in salvation. We were dead. He made us alive. We were his enemies. He made us his friends. We were darkened. He enlightened our minds. We were in chains. He set us free. We wander. He brings us back. We tremble. He gives us peace. We grow weak. He gives us strength. We sin. He forgives us. We would fall away. He holds us fast. Grace upon grace upon grace. New mercies every single day. If you're here and you don't follow Jesus, you should. You should follow Jesus. You should follow him. He came so that you might live and not die. He came to give your soul spiritual bread that will nourish your spiritual hunger forever. And he will accept all who come to him. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you come to Jesus in faith, he will lavish his grace on you. He'll take the judgment you deserve. He'll give you his robes of righteousness. He'll set his love and affection upon you and give you his very own spirit to bless and keep you throughout the course of your life. I wonder if you are not following Jesus also, if, if you might be in a really hard season right now a season where the difficulties just keep piling up. Maybe it seems like it's just one trial after another. Maybe it seems like if there is a God, he's opposing you. If that's you, friend, I wonder if you would consider that God might, might, there's a lot of nuance that goes into this conversation, but that God might be trying to get your attention. You see that even in our passage. Joseph's harsh treatment of his brothers, turning the screws on them when he throws them in prison, results in them starting to become aware of their sins, results in them becoming convicted of their sins. I bring this up because God may at times use trials to get your attention. 
to show you that he is there. But his purpose in sending those trials is not to oppose you for the sake of opposing you, but that you might see how you've sinned and like Joseph's brothers, turn to the one who can nourish your soul. That is Jesus Christ. I wanna encourage you to do what Joseph's brothers do. Turn to him and receive the grace that Jesus Christ lavishes on all who turn to him in faith. He gives his grace and lavishes his grace freely. And I want to underscore that he freely gives his grace for the teens and kids. I want you to notice again in the passage, Joseph puts the money back that they brought in their sacks. The money that they came to buy grain with, Joseph gives back to them. He's saying, you can't, you can't buy my grain. I, I give it freely. Oh, teens and kids especially, you can't buy God's grace. But he gives it freely out of his abundant storehouses. You can't earn his favor, right? Your obedience, our obedience, is never the cause of our salvation as though we're meriting God's grace. Obedience is the right response to receiving God's lavish grace, right? If God has lavished such amazing grace on me, of course I will obey him. He is a good God. You know, maybe some of the teens and kids, though, are wondering, I think I believe. I, I think I've received God's grace. I think I've put my faith in Jesus. How, how do I know if I've believed? One way, there are a number of different ways that we could talk about. One way that you know is that there's a change in your life. There's a change that occurs in your heart and in your thinking. I want the teens and kids and the adults as well, especially to look with me at the very end of chapter 43. You see this detail there. In, in verse 34, portions were taken to them, that is Joseph's brothers, from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry, happy with him. Joseph gives the youngest brother, Benjamin, five times as much as the other brothers. And then they all eat and drink and are merry. Why is that important? It's important because Joseph's brothers hated him and sold him into slavery because they were jealous of what he had. They were jealous that he was, their, he was their father's favorite. Joseph is testing them to see if they are still controlled by that same envy and jealousy. He gives Benjamin five times as much as them, and it appears that the grace that they've received has changed them. They aren't jealous of Benjamin. They don't try to kill him. They, they eat and drink. They're, they're merry with him. Those who have experienced God's grace will notice a change. Not a perfect change. Not that you won't sin. Not that you won't still have temptations. But there will be a desire. A desire to fight sin. A growing desire for God and his word. A desire to be in church, worshiping God. You'll start to recognize sin as sin and being convicted by it. For the kids, teens, parents, I want to encourage you to take some time today to talk about whether that change has happened in your life. 
God's grace in our lives produces a change. But this is important for the adults too. Those who have received God's grace have been changed. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The, new, the old is gone, the new has come. Are you walking in that new way of life? Are you giving in to things like envy and jealousy or bitterness and unforgiveness? We're gonna talk a whole lot about unforgiveness in our next sermon on Genesis. Are you giving in to things like anger, gossip, lust, lying, fear, a judgmental spirit, or other sins? Friends, God has given us his spirit and in Christ, he's given us the power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. So if you struggle this past week with sin, my encouragement to you is to turn to God in repentance. He is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins. He delights to lavish his grace on his people. And if you doubt that, I wanna point you to Joseph, whose deep emotion we see on multiple occasions in these chapters, his weeping and compassion towards the brothers who sold him into slavery is a beautiful picture of the type of compassion and love that Christ has for his people. He is our sympathetic high priest. Joseph is a a picture of the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. His heart is full of love for his people even as they struggle with sin. Thomas Goodman Thomas Goodman Goodwin wrote about Christ. Christ is love covered over in flesh. Or Dane Ortland, who said, meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. That is his posture towards you today. Lavish grace, overflowing grace. And he opens his arms to you and to me today. We should run into those open arms day after day to receive the lavish grace that God has for his people. We get a picture, we get to celebrate a picture of that grace in the Lord's Supper after this sermon. Christ welcomes us to his table week in and week out. But that feast also reminds us that there's a greater feast coming, y'all, when we, an unworthy people, sit down at the wedding feast of the Lamb to receive the full riches of God's lavish grace. And then we will eat and drink and be merry forever. Let's pray. Father, just as Joseph's brothers sat down at the table to feast with him, and they looked around at one another in amazement, astonished that they weren't just getting grain, they were getting a feast that they didn't deserve, we pray that you would astonish us with your grace. And not just that we came to you and you welcomed us to your table, but you went out into the streets and you brought us, dragged us by the collar into your kingdom and gave us a seat at your table. 
help, to help us to feast on the riches of Christ today and to walk in obedience to the gracious gospel he brings. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.